0: Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world. It's the 80s movie podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. On this episode, we're going to start a mini series that I've been dreading doing, not because of the films this company produced or released during the 1980s, but because it means shining any kind of light on a serial sexual abuser and his enabling brother. But one cannot do a show like this, talking about movies of the 1980s, and completely ignore Miramax films. But I am not here to defend Harvey Weinstein. I am not here to make him look good. My focus for this series, however many episodes it ends up being, will be on the films and the filmmakers, because it's important to note that the Weinsteins did not have a hand in the production of any of the movies Miramax released in the 1980s, and the two that they did have a hand in making, one a horror film, the other a comedy, that would be the only film the Weinsteins would ever direct themselves, were distributed by companies other than Miramax. But before I do begin, I want to disclose my own personal history with the Weinsteins. As you may know, I was a movie theater manager for Landmark Theaters in the mid-1990s, running their New Wilshire Theater in Santa Monica, California. The theater was acquired by Landmark from Mann Theaters in 1992 and quickly became a hot destination for arthouse films. For those who didn't want to deal with the hassle of trying to get to the Lemley Monica Four, about a mile away, situated in a very busy area right off the beach, full of tourists who didn't know how to park properly and made a general nuisance of themselves to the locals, one of the first movies to play at the New Wilshire after Landmark acquired it was Quentin Tarantino's debut film Reservoir, which was released by Miramax in the fall of 1982. The New Wilshire quickly became a sort of lucky charm to Harvey Weinstein which I would learn when I left Cineplex Beverly Center in June 1993, to take over the New Wilshire from my friend Will, the great-grandson of William Fox, the founder of Fox Films, who was being promoted to district manager and personally recommended me to replace him. During my two-plus years at the New Wilshire, I fielded a number of calls from Harvey Weinstein. Not his secretary. Not his marketing people. Harvey himself. Harvey took a great interest in the theater and regularly wanted my feedback about his films and how they were performing at my theater. I don't know if he had heard those stories about Stanley Kubrick doing the same thing years before, but I probably spoke to him at least once a month. I never met the man and I didn't really enjoy speaking with him because a phone call from him meant I wasn't doing the work I actually needed to do, but keeping Harvey happy would mean continuing to get his best films for my theater, so I indulged him a bit more than I probably should have. And that indulgence did occasionally have its perks. Although I was not the manager of the new Wilshire Wind Reservoir Dogs played there, Quentin Tarantino personally hand-delivered one of the first teaser posters for his second movie, Pulp Fiction, to me, asking me if I would put it up in our poster frame. Even though we both knew we were never going to play the film, with the cast he had assembled and the reviews that were coming out of Cannes, he, like Harvey Weinstein, considered the theater his lucky charm. I did put the poster up, even though we never did play the film, and you probably know how well the film did. Maybe we were the lucky charm. I also got to meet Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier weeks before their first film, Clerks, opened. We hosted a special screening sponsored by the Independent Feature Project, now known as Film Independent, whose work to help promote independent film goes far deeper than just handing out the Spirit Awards each year. Scott and Mosier were cool cats, and I was able to give Kevin Smith something the following year but he screened rats. a few weeks before it opened. And thanks to Miramax, I was gifted something that ended up being one of the best nights of my life. An invitation to the Spirit Awards and the After Party in 1995, the year Tarantino and his producer Lawrence Bender won a number of awards for Pulp Fiction. At the After Party, my then-girlfriend and I ended up drinking tequila with Toni Collette, who was just making her mark on American movie screens that very weekend, thanks to Miramax's release of Muriel's Wedding, and then playing pool against Colette and Tarantino, while his Spirit Award sat on a nearby table. 20 feet from stardom indeed. I left that job at the end of summer in 1995, and I would not be involved with the Weinstein brothers for a number of years, until after I would moved to New York City in 2001, started FilmJerk.com, and established myself as a film critic. As a critic, I had been invited to an advanced screening of Bad Santa at the AMC Empire 25, and on the way out, Bob Weinstein randomly stopped me in the lobby to ask me a few questions about my reaction to the film, which was the one and only time I ever interacted with either brother face-to-face and would be the last time I ever interacted with either of them in any capacity. As a journalist, I felt it was necessary to disclose these things, although I don't believe they've clouded my judgment about them. They were smart enough to acquire some very good films or very early in their careers, They built a successful distribution company with some very smart people who most likely knew about their boss's disgusting proclivities and neither said nor did anything about it. And they would eventually succumb to the reckoning that was always going to come to them, one way or another. I'm saddened that so many women were hurt by these men physically and emotionally, and I will not be satisfied that they got what was coming to them until they've answered for everything they did. Okay, enough with the proselyzing. I will only briefly go into the history of the Weinstein brothers and how they came to found Miramax, and I'm going to get that out of the way right now. Harvey Weinstein and his younger brother Bob were born in Queens, New York, and after Harvey went to college in Buffalo, the brothers would start up a rock concert promotion company in that area. After several successful years in the concert business, they would take their profits and start up an independent film distribution company, which they named Miramax, after their parents, Miriam. And Max. They would symbolically start their company up on December 31st, 1979. Like the old joke goes, they may have been concert promoters, but they really wanted to be filmmakers. But they would need to build up their company first, and they would use their connections in the music industry to pick up the American distribution rights to Rock Show, the first concert movie featuring Paul McCartney and his post Beatles band Wings, which had been filmed during their 1976 Wings Over the World tour. And even from the start, Harvey Weinstein would earn the derisive nickname many people would give him over the years, Harvey Scissorhands, as he would cut down what was originally a 125-minute movie down to 102 minutes. Miramax would open Rock Show on nine screens in the New York City area on Wednesday, November 26, 1980, including the prestigious Ziegfeld Theater, for what was billed as a one-week-only run. But the film would end up exceeding their wildest expectations grossing $113,000 from those nine screens, including nearly $46,000 just from the Ziegfeld. That film would get its run extended for a second week, the absolute final week, threatened its ads. But the film would continue to play, at least at the Zigfeld until Saturday, December 13th, when the theater was closed for five days to prepare for what the theater expected to be their big hit of the Christmas season, Neil Diamond's first movie, The Jazz Singer. It would be a sad coincidence that Rockstar's run at the Ziegfeld had been extended, and was still playing the night McCartney's friend and former bandmate, John Lennon, was assassinated barely a mile away from the theater. But strangely, instead of exploiting the death of Lennon and capitalizing on the sudden, unexpected, and tragic reemergence of Beatlemania, Merrimack seemed to have let the picture go. I cannot find any playdates for the film in any city outside of the Big Apple after December 1980, And the film would be unseen in any form outside of a brief home video release in 1982, until June 2013, when the restored 125-minute cut was released on DVD and Blu-ray after a one-night theatrical showing in cinemas worldwide. As the Brothers Weinstein were in the process of gearing up Miramax, they would try their hand at writing and producing a movie themselves. Seeing that movies like Halloween and Friday the 13th were becoming hits, Harvey would write up a five-page treatment for a horror movie based on an upstate New York boogeyman called Cropsey, which Harvey had first heard about during his school days at camp. Bob Weinstein would write the script for The Burning with steampunk author Peter Lawrence in six weeks, hire a British music documentary filmmaker Tony Milam that the brothers knew through their concert promenade days, and they would have the film in production in Buffalo, New York in the summer of 1980 with makeup effects by Tom Savini. Once the film was complete, They accepted a purchase deal from Filmway Pictures, covering most of the cost of the $1.5 million production, which they would funnel right back into their fledgling distribution company. But when The Burning opened in and around the Florida area on May 15, 1981, the market was already overloaded with horror films, from Oliver Stone's The Hand and Edward Bianchi's The Fan to Louis Teague's Alligator and J. Lee Thompson's Happy Birthday to Me to Joe Dante's The Howling and the second installment of the Friday the 13th series. Outside of Buffalo, where the movie was shot, the film did not perform well, no matter how many times Phil Filmways would try to sell it. After several months, The Burning would only gross about $300,000, which would help drive Filmways into bankruptcy. And as we mentioned a couple years ago on our series about Orion Pictures, they would buy all the assets to Filmways, including The Burning which the company would re-release into theaters with new artwork into the New York City metropolitan region on November 5th, 1982 to help promote the upcoming home video release of the film. In just seven days at 78 theaters, the film would gross $401,000, more than it had earned over its entire run during the previous year. But the film would be gone from theaters the following week as exhibitors do not like playing movies that are also playing on cable and or are available on videotape. It is estimated the film's final gross would be about $750,000 in the United States, but the film would become a minor success on home video and repeated cable screenings. Now, some sources on the interwebs will tell you that the first movie Miramax released was Goodbye Emmanuel, based in part on a profile of the brothers and their company in a March 2000 issue of Fortune magazine, in which writer Tim Carvell makes this claim. Whether this info nugget came from bad research or bad memory on the part of one or both of the brothers, it's simply not true. Goodbye Emmanuel, as it would be released by Miramax in an edited and dubbed version, would be released more than a year after Rock Show on December 5th, 1981. It would gross a cool $241,000 in 50 theaters in New York City, but it would lose 80% of its screens in its second week, mostly for Miramax's next film, a low-budget British-made Sci-fi sex comedies called Spaced Out. Or at least, that's what the brothers thought would be a better title for the movie than Outer Touch was in the UK. Which I can't necessarily argue. Outer Touch is a pretty dumb title for a movie. Even the film's director, Norman Warren, agrees. But that's all he would agree with the brothers on. He hated everything else they did to his film to prepare it for an American release. Harvey would edit the film down to 77 minutes in length, had a new dub created to de-emphasize the British accents of the original actors and change the music score and the ending. And for his efforts, Weinstein's would see some success when the film was released into 41 theaters in New York City on December 11th. But whether or not its positive performance was because of the film itself, which was very poorly reviewed, or because it was paired with the first reissue of The Groove Tube since Chevy Chase, one of the actors in that film, became a star, remains to be seen. Miramax would only release one movie for all of 1982, but it would end up being their first relative hit film. Between 1976 and 1981, there were four live shows of music and comedy in the United Kingdom for the benefit of Amnesty International. Inspired by former Monty Python star John Cleese, these shows would raise millions for the international non-governmental organization focused on human rights issues around the world. The third show, in 1979, was called. The Secret Policeman's Ball, and would not only feature Cleese, who also directed the live show, performing with his fellow Pythons Terry Jones and Michael Palin, but would also be a major launching pad of two of the most iconic comedians of the 1980s, English comedian Rowan Atkinson and Scottish comedian Billy Connolly. But unlike the first two Amnesty Benefit shows, Cleese decided to add some musical acts to the bill, including Pete Townsend of The Boo. The shows would be a big success in the United Kingdom, and the Weinsteins, once again using their connections in the music scene, would buy the American film rights for the show before they actually incorporated Miramax Films. That purchase would actually be the impetus for creating the company. But one slight problem. The show was naturally very British. One bit from the show, featuring the legendary British comedian and actor Peter Cook, was a nine-minute bit summing up a recent bit of British history when the leader of the British Labour Party was tried on charges of conspiracy and incitement to murdering his ex-boyfriend it would not make any sense to anyone who wasn't following the trial in the United Kingdom. But all in all, even with the musical segments featuring Townsend, the Weinsteins felt there was only about 40 minutes worth of material that could be used for a movie. It also didn't help that the show was shot with 16mm film, which would be extremely grainy when blown up to 35mm. But while they hemmed and hawed through trying to shape the film, Cleese and his show partners at Amnesty decided to do another set of benefit shows in 1981, this time called The Secret Policeman's Other Ball. Knowing that there might be interest in the film version of the show, the team would decide to shoot the film in 35mm. Cleese would co-direct the live show, while music video director Julian Temple would be in charge of filming. And judging from the success of an EP released in 1980, Featuring Townsend's performance at the previous show, Cleese would arrange for more musical artists to perform, including Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, Phil Collins, Donovan, Bob Geldof, Sting, and mid of Ultraviolet. In fact, it would be because of their participation in these shows that would lead Geldof and Europe to form Band-Aid in 1984, which would raise $24 million for famine relief in Ethiopia in just three months, And the subsequent Live Aid shows in July 1985 would raise another $126 million worldwide. The 1981 Amnesty benefit shows were a success, especially the one-time-only performance of a supergroup called The Secret Police, comprising of Beck, Clapton, Geldof, and Sting, performing Bob Dylan's I Shall Be Released at the show's closing. And the Y-Scenes would make another deal to buy the American rights to these shows, While Temple's version of the 1981 shows would be shown as intended for U.K. audiences in 1982, the co-creator of the series, British producer Martin Lewis, would spend three months in New York City with Harvey Weinstein at the end of 1981 and the start of 1982, working to turn the 1979 and 1981 shows into one cohesive movie geared towards American audiences. After premiering at the Los Angeles International Film Exposition in March of 1982, the secret policeman's other ball would open on nine screens in the greater New York City metropolitan area on May 21, 1982, but only on one screen in all of Manhattan. And in its first three days, the movie would gross an amazing $116,000, including $36,750 at the Sutton Theater in the midtown east part of New York City. Even more astounding than that, in its second weekend, at the same nine theaters, the film would actually increase its gross to $121,000, when most movies in their second week were seeing their grosses drop 30-50% to 50% because of the opening of Rocky Three, After just four weeks in just New York City, on just nine or ten screens each week, the secret policeman's other ball would gross more than $400,000. The film would already be profitable for Miramax. But the Weinsteins were still cautious. It wouldn't be until July 16th when they'd start to send the film out to other markets like Los Angeles, where they could only get five theaters to show the film, including the brand new Cineplex Beverly Center, itself opening the same day, which, as the first Cineplex in America, was as desperate to show any movie it could as Miramax was to show the movie at any theater they could. When all was said and done, The Secret Policeman's Other Ball would gross nearly $4 million in American theaters. So you'd think that now that they had a hit film under their belts, Miramax would gear up and start acquiring more films and establishing themselves as a true up-and-coming independent distributor, right? You'd think. Now, I've already said Secret Policeman and Another Ball was their only release in 1982. So naturally, you'd think their first of like 10 or 12 releases for 1983 would come in January, right? You'd think. In fact, Miramax's next theatrical release, the first theatrical release of Da Pennebacher's Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars concert film, from the legendary final Ziggy show at the Hammersmith Odeon in London on July 3, 1973, would not come until December 23, 1983, and for the third time in three years, it would be their music connections that would help the Weinstein's acquire the film. Although the Ziggy Stardust movie had been kicking around for years, mostly one-night-only 16mm screenings on college campuses and a heavily edited 44-minute version that aired once on the American television network ABC in October of 1974, this would be the first time a full-length 90-minute version of the movie would be seen. And the timing for it couldn't have come at a better time. 1983 had been a banner year for the musician and occasional actor. His album, Let's Dance, had sold more than 5 million copies worldwide and spawned three hit singles. His Serious Moonlight Tour, his first concert tour in five years, was the biggest tour of the year in the world. And he won critical praise for his role as a British prisoner of war in Nagisha Oshima's powerful Japanese World War II film, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. The Weinsteins would enlist the help of 20th Century Fox to get the film into theaters during a very competitive Christmas movie-going season. But despite their best efforts, Fox and Miramax could only nab one theater in all of New York City, the 8th Street Playhouse in Lower Manhattan, and five in Los Angeles, including two screens at the Cineplex Beverly Center. And for the weekend, its $58,500 gross would be quite decent, with a per-screen average above such films as Scarface, Sudden Impact, and Yentl. But in its second weekend, the all-important Christmas week, the gross would fall nearly 50%, when the vast majority of movies improved their grosses with the kids out of school and the wage earners getting time off for the holidays. Fox and Miramax would stay committed to the film throughout the early part of 1984, but they would keep their costs down by rotating the six prints made for New York and Los Angeles to other cities as those plays' dates wound down, and only buying eighth-page display ads in local newspapers' entertainment sections when it arrived in a new city. The final gross would fall short of a half a million dollars but the film would find its audience on home video later in the year. And while the Weinsteins are no longer involved with the handling of the film, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars will be getting a theatrical release across the planet in the first week of July 2023 to coincide with the 50th anniversary of that concert. So, here we are, four years into the formation of Miramax Films, and they've only released five films into theaters, plus wrote and produced another one released by Filmways. One minor hit, four relative disappointments, and we're still years away from them becoming the distributor that they would become. But we're going to stop here for today because I like to keep these episodes short. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again next week when we continue with the story of Miramax films from 1984 to 1987. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com, for extra materials about the movies we've covered on this episode. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.